this episode of Between the Lines, Ian Schoons and Andrea Cornwall, editors of the book Revolutionising Development, Reflections on the Work of Robert Chambers, interview Robert Chambers about his work and legacy. The book, which has just been made open access with a new forward from IDS director Melissa Leach, tells the story of development studies in practice over the last 50 years, with contributions from authors who have been intimately involved as collaborators, critics and colleagues of Robert Chambers. So this podcast is about the edited book, Revolutionising Development. It's actually really a story, the book is, of development from the colonial era to the present through the work of one remarkable person, one Robert Chambers. And we're delighted to celebrate the book, which was originally published 10 years ago, uh, because it's now open access, so you can all download it for free today. It's a compilation of over 30 short essays reflecting on Robert's work and the author's engagement with it. And we start with those who worked with Robert when he was a colonial officer in the 1950s in Kenya. And it goes all the way through his pioneering work on, on vulnerability and poverty through to his work, especially with Indian colleagues on participation in the 1990s, right up to his most recent engagements with community-led sanitation. So my name is uh, Ian Schoons. I'm based at the Institute of Development Studies at Sussex, and I'm joined by co-editor of the book, Andrea Cornwall, who's based at SOAS in London. Thank you, very glad to be here. And of course, we're joined by Robert Chambers himself. Welcome, Robert. Thank you. So let's start with a, a question from Andrea. So yes, uh, Robert, the introductory essay in the book offers a bit of biographical background on your intellectual and practical journey. I think um, something pretty basic for me has been not having a discipline. I, I um, became a nomad fairly early on. I did natural sciences up to school certificate, up to a higher school certificate. Then I switched to history. And then um, after two years in the army, I, national service, <laughs> I switched um, to history at university. And since then I've simply been a wanderer. And that is wonderfully liberating. If you um, are trapped by being, I am a sociologist, that means you can teach sociology um, because you, you know it, you're right inside there. Or if, I, you know, if I'm an economist, and I can't say I'm an anything. I'm a nomad. That's what, well, I suppose that is something, but I'm a nomad. And <laughs> the fun of this is unbelievable um, because you, nobody can ask me to, to teach sociology or social anthropology or anything because they, they know and I know that I don't know. Um, on the other hand, I, I can wander. I can look for blind spots. Um, I can try and offset biases. And biases and blind spots have been a, a theme of one of the things that I've been doing because I've been looking for a blind spot, which if you think of it in, in terms of a, a real nomad is finding, or a nomadic animal, finding, finding an, an, an ungrazed area. And then you, you graze it and then other animals or people realize and they, and they come along. And then it's time to move on and look for another one. And that's, what I've, that's how I've been surviving, hopping, as it were, from one to another. And it's been great fun. 
And I think the fun and the way um, that feeds into one's sense of how one's working and what one's working on, that, that idea that it's fun, that there's the undiscovered there, that you're looking for things. Um, and there are aha moments, which are really, really important. Um, <laughs> I think that's been a great privilege of mine to be in that condition. Fantastic. Thank you, Robert. So one of the things that you did early on um, in your career after being a, a district commissioner in, in Kenya is to work on management and administration of development projects. And one of your earliest books, uh, Managing Rural Development, Ideas and Experiences from East Africa, documents this, published, I think, in 1974. And as we reflected in the introduction to the, to the book, uh, we both think it's one of your best books. I know you don't necessarily agree because we've had this discussion before, mm. but in a way it's, it's, it's the sort of wonderful honesty of, of, uh, and reflection on the limitations, but also possibilities of conventional development as it was back then in the 70s. So we got a number of people reflecting as managers and administrators in the book. We've got John Morris, sadly now late, Roberta Lenton, David Leonard, and others, all reflecting on the challenges of management and administration of development. So the question I'd like to ask, reflecting on that book and that experience uh, in Kenya back way back then, and perhaps especially some of the challenges that you faced during the implementation and, and oversight of those projects about how good ideas about community involvement get co-opted and diluted and diverted. What do you think some of the lessons are for the current managers of development in aid agencies? What can they learn from all of this 40, 50 year experience of, of thinking about how development is done. One important aspect of this is to have allies. <clears throat> and the allies, if they're in powerful positions in the organization or relatively influential positions, that makes a huge difference. And if you can turn the allies into a, a little network or even a group of people who are semi-subversive, who meet, um, meet even outside the office as it were, but can meet in the office too. Um, I think that makes a huge difference because it's not just you fighting a lone battle. It's a group of you. So one of the quotes I really love in that book is, is the one that says, simple, quick and dirty can have very high returns. And um, that sort of encapsulates things that you know influence you later on with rapid rural appraisal and so on. But there's an interesting exchange that John Morris recalls from your work uh, in Moya in the book, um, when he was, you know, stuck with these huge, great surveys, and you were saying, "Well, simple, quick, and dirty can have high returns." So, can you, you know, reflect a little bit about that era when you were confronting what you then later called survey slavery? In those days, we didn't have computers, or at least if they existed, they were very, very slow and inefficient. And what this meant was 
that in any questionnaire survey, it was a very, very long and laborious process. It's difficult to believe now, but I remember identifying that it usually took about eight months between the survey taking place and the data being in a form that one could analyze and draw conclusions from. Now, the eight months might have been more than was really necessary, but it, it, it was extraordinary how much we were enslaved to that as the only way in which you can generate numbers, which everybody wanted. And so social science research was narrowed to that, which, which, which was characterized as long and dirty, and then quick and, quick and dirty um, uh, was, was really bad. bad, bad research done very, very quickly you know, sort of roadside, all sorts of biases and errors creeping in. And so what we really wanted was something which was fairly quick and fairly clean. <clears throat> and that's what we were looking for other methods because social anthropology, I used to make jokes about social anthropologists, which was um, if, you, if, they, if they've been in the field for over a year and you ask them a practical question, they'll say, well, I'll need another six months to be able to answer that. <laughs> I mean, that's a caricature, but it was true that social anthropologists did take a very, very long time. And so I thought there must be some intermediate methods and approaches, which are fairly quick and fairly clean. Yeah, great. And that, of course, revolutionized our, our practice in development subsequently. Thank you. So, Robert, of all your memorable phrases, whose knowledge counts and putting the last verse stand out? Uh, these are essential calls to rethink, revolutionise even what we know as development. How do you see these arguments in relation to current appeals for the decolonization of development? And, and what might this move imply for Western development aid, even for places like IDFs in the longer term? Good question. And I don't know. Um, it's partly because I don't properly understand yet what this decolonization is all about. I mean, I've got the gist of it, I think, but I hadn't really got my mind around it. But if those um, precepts did not apply in decolonized social science, I would want to raise quite serious questions about why not and is it something wrong with you rather than something wrong with me? Yeah, and I think the um, with the decolonization debate, when you know, when you look at the kind of arguments that are being made, it's about turning exactly the kind of stuff that you were arguing. You know, thinking about whose knowledge counts, whose perspective counts, whose versions, whose solutions, all of that stuff. It's yes. fundamentally questioning the imposition which has come with uh, particular frames, particular ways of seeing and doing. Uh, particularly from the uh, the influence of economics and some of these other positivist disciplines in development yes. on understanding solutions. So your whole thing about looking at things from the other way, um, putting the last first, looking at things from the global south, that's it's very it chimes very strongly with the decolonization movement. I think every generation has to ge generate its own categories, terminology and insights and to have all the, the thrill and excitement that goes with discovery, with exploration and discovery, using those, whatever they are, those terms, those concepts, those approaches. 
um, if what is being done under the name of decolonization overlaps and actually actually is is the, pretty much the same as what has gone before, I would say that's okay. There's no there's no ownership of putting the last first. <laughs> But it had a, an extraordinary impact. Um, I remember meeting people um, just after it was published and it had a completely extraordinary impact on people. They had literally, um, it, it awakened a sense of the possible um, in some of the people that I, I met who had not seen that critique put forward so powerfully. So that critique in terms of knowledge, indigenous knowledge, all of that work uh, was heavily influenced, I think, by, by your thinking. And I think, yeah, as, as Andrea was saying, the, the echoes of some of that work that were, you know, on the margins of, of debates in the 70s and 80s are now absolutely mainstream. I mean, there are whole processes around rethinking whose knowledge counts mm. in development studies, whole committees that exists for thinking about how to put the last first. Not necessarily in that, those terms, but... Uh, the, the, the sort of resonance of that debate, which you know you were introducing from the margins very much and often criticized for it, um, is now very, very, very much mainstream and yeah, will have its disadvantages and challenges into the future, no doubt. Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted to ask you a little bit more about development studies as a field. Um, because all of these debates that we've been talking about have, as it were, sat underneath the umbrella of something called development studies, which was an invention in the 1960s, I suppose. When IDS was established in 1966, you joined relatively soon after that. Um, and your work, in a way, spreads the span of development studies as a field. Um, and you've always argued right from the beginning, I would say, even in, in managing rural development, for a sort of more bottom-up, cross-disciplinary, nomadic approach, the sort of nomadic approach that you talked about at the beginning. And in the book, we've got a number of different contributors, whether it's Richard Jolly or Louise Fortman or Barbara Harris-White, who make similar arguments for a sort of cross-disciplinary approach to development. You mentioned this before, so reflecting on this, how do you see the role of, of so-called disciplinary expertise? You say you're not a disciplined person, um, but how do you see the role of disciplinary expertise in development studies, and particularly the role of, of economics, which has been one of the, the main disciplines contributing to the field? And following on from that, what do you think, to some extent, is then the future of a more interdisciplinary version of development studies that you've already advocated? I think there have been big changes. Um, I think the, the attitudes of non-economists to economists, if we go back 30 years, were really quite primitive. But then economists were a little bit arrogant, or some were, in wanting to impose their disciplinary approach on everything else. And I think we're way, way beyond all that now, way, way beyond. It's difficult to remember really that that existed. I think for anybody coming in from, what, what, coming in from whatever disciplinary background, it ought to be, and I think very often is, quite enthralling to be in a field where no 
one discipline dominates. And where anything that anybody brings from their own experience may be of relevance. It's not just disciplines, it's, it's your own personal experience and judgment that are significant. This makes it all fun. And I, I think the word fun has been rather neglected in development studies. <laughs> we should have more fun. If it isn't fun, if you don't have some ahas in your work, what's wrong? Is it something wrong with you? Is it something wrong with the work? Or is it something wrong with my saying that you ought to have fun? <laughs> so, I mean, beyond the fun that we can all have, and I'm absolutely up for that, is um, do you think development studies, I mean, a lot of people say, oh, development studies was a thing for the sort of immediate period post-colonization. It was a very particular project associated with aid. Um, and even though if we can bring all these cross-disciplinary experiences to it, it's had its day. Do you think that's the case? I don't think it's, it's, it's the case. I think what's happening is really an answer to your question, that development studies in general seem to be rather flourishing. And they occupy a particular historical position because of the colonial relationship and yet it's been moving away from that. I mean, development studies can apply very much in the UK. And I think over the last 10 years, we've had the experience of realizing that what we, we from, the, from the North um, were, 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 were seeing and were applying to the realities that we dealt with was really very biased. And we're now much more on a, a level level playing field, but it's it's more south south. And from oh, 15, 20 years ago, when we had the first international south south workshops, it became very exciting that it was south south. But now it's south north as well. It's everybody. And so there's a universality about development studies now, which it didn't have when it started out but which I think is a very good thing. Absolutely, couldn't agree more. And indeed in the book, John Gaventa, of course, who came to IDS from having worked in the Southern United States, talking about the South in the North, um, talks, talks about this, this very theme. Thank you. Uh, so Robert, you're probably best known for your, your work on participation, on PRA and so on participatory methods. And from the late 1980s, these approaches really took off and you played a huge role um, in promoting and engaging uh, people with them. That's how we got to know each other um, and lots of other people around the world who you inspired in that way. Um, and so, uh, but there were problems and uh, indeed Sam Joseph, Miriam Parmesh Shah and others in the book reflect on this. And uh, we were all involved in the workshop that resulted in the piece Voicing Our Concerns. Um, but at that time, those pleas largely felt on deaf ears. So what are your reflections on the future of participatory approaches in development? And how can the problems identified back then uh, be addressed? And how have they uh, been addressed in recent times? I think the problems are still there. I think the problems assert themselves after a certain period. So you can have a, a big push for participatory approaches and methods and they're being introduced and people being trained in them and so on. And then it'll gradually fall away. And that's what's happened. And I think we have to face the probability 
that we have a cyclical phenomenon here and that every maybe eight or nine years, some, something like that, we have to have another big push, including a lot of training in participatory approaches and methods and participatory behaviors. That's the bit that gets dropped off most easily because we you know, can have a, a horror of being a proselytizing or being a missionary or preaching and about other people's behavior and attitudes. Um, but it's, it shouldn't be so. It should be that we see that behavior, attitudes, relationships, and particularly relationships which mediate power one way or another, that these are crucial. And if they get forgotten and dropped off, then they need to be reinstated vigorously. The message seems to me to be constant vigilance and prompt and decisive action. Um, I was going to say, I think it's also really interesting what you say about the cycles. So I remember us talking about this in relation to participation in development uh, and your work from the 1974 book looking at how participation had been used and these broader cycles. So taking that into consideration, how you see participation uh, playing out at the moment and what role participatory methods, particularly the participatory behaviours, could play um, in relation to that. I think there's an, an easy way out of out of this question, and that is to say it's all context specific. <laughs> um, and I think it is, but I don't really know where we are at the moment. Uh, participatory methodologies are numerous. And I used to make lists of these in workshops and we would get a list of 15 to 20 participatory methodologies. I don't know whether you could do that now. I don't know whether they still exist to the same extent, and which do and which don't. It's partly because, of course, I don't have done any workshops for many years. Um, but I would be very interested to know what the reality is. You know, we, we had approaches like the reality check, uh, for instance. Does that still go on? I don't know. I'd love to know. And a lot of other methods, too. I think there's been quite a lot of innovation during the pandemic, actually, with visual methods and the use of WhatsApp and, you know, uh, and exchanges across the Internet that have allowed people to engage in totally different ways, which, you know, when we were back then, as you said, I mean, computers may have been um, invented, but Zoom certainly wasn't on our radar, let alone WhatsApp. So I think, you know, there's, there's a continuous process of innovation. It's the principles that matter and the and the underlying mm. behaviors, as you say, that, that become important, which is why, you know, even if the method, methods change, your, as it were, arguments have, have you know, persisted in different ways. Okay. And one of the things that we picked up in the book, though, is we felt there were several transitions for you in your whole career when we were looking at it in, in, 10 years ago. One was the, the shift from administrator to to nomad, if you like, as you put it, put it earlier on. And the other, other was an, a shift from participatory methods to thinking about power in relation to participation. I think in conversation with you, as we wrote that introduction to the book, it was the whole World Bank experience with uh, Voices of the Poor that sort of highlighted the challenges of 
power in relation to mm. to participation it wasn't just going to be the methods of listening to the to the poor it was the power relations that were embedded in there and i think ravi kanbo um comments on this in 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 his chapter in the book is that a reasonable reflection of that as it were transition and and does that still apply yes the recognition of power was something that came to me rather late and partly through john gaventa because his um his work in the United States before he before he came um, confronted power, and was undermined by power, and um, even using violence and letting his tires down and this sort of thing, um, uh, and that made an impression on me. But I think the impression that the thing that really got me was something which I, I call death by well, it's it says in the in the paper it says a million cuts. I thought it was a thousand. But death by a thousand cuts, um, however many cuts, but lots and lots of little editorial cuts could change the tone, and more than the tone, it could change the substance of what was being said, and particularly as it was received by somebody reading it. And that made me realize how significant the manipulation of information is, and how we're taking, and it's, of course, it, in, in contemporary terms. Um, when we, we think about um, Ukraine and what's going on there, the, the, the manufacture of um, fake information is going on on quite a large scale, but you don't know whether the information that you're getting is being faked. And that in, indeterminacy is, is a problem now, perhaps more acute than it's been in the past. Absolutely. No, that's... Uh important point and also why you know having an external editor based at the world bank is something that somebody like robert chambers does not like because you are very <laughs> very very acutely aware of how you write and i think one of the things that i've learned from you in exchanging written material is how you craft the English language in a way that allows it to be both accessible and powerful and also use poetry at times, which I've always found remarkable in some of your pieces. We, we cut and pasted a few of your poems in the introduction, which I love. So, I mean, I think we should, we should probably move to, to the end of this discussion. Um, we could carry on forever, but, uh, I wonder, Robert, you know, you should really have the last word because this book is, is about you and your work and people reflecting on it, but it's also a book at your insistence, not just about you in an indulgent sense, but about ideas and experiences and reflections, looking back over a career in order to, in order to look forward, which is a theme that Melissa Leach, who is now the director of, of IDS, but also contributed to a, a piece in the book on the basis of, I think, her very first piece of work at IDS when she was a, an intern or something working with you way back when. I wonder if you've got any thoughts about the book and, its, and the collection of contributions in there and perhaps something for the listeners to this podcast about, I don't know, why they should read it now that it's free and open access. Mm. Well, the, the book has astonished me. Um, I didn't, I didn't realize that there was a potential book like this lurking in the wings, as it were. But one thing that I must say, and that is that 
because of the nature of the book, that each of the chapters is by somebody who was working with me. Each one of them is very um, modest about their own role and they over attribute to me. And it's built into the method, if you think of it, that you go to a number of people who've worked with the same one person, over attribution to that one person and under attribution to all the individual contributors is built into the process. And if we're serious about looking at knowledge and understanding and where it comes from and what the biases and pressures are, that is something that we must take into account. In terms of the future, I think one of the most important things is to, to use the past as a sort of, what shall I call it, a, a mine, if you like, um, a source of ideas, something that you can be quite selective about in terms of what people have written, what they've thought, that you don't have to join a school uh, with a, the, implicitly things which go with school, like schoolmasters and uh, raps over the knuckles and all that. Um, you, 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 you don't have to do that. By far the best thing to do, if we're going to find our ways forward, is not to reproduce the methods um, of the past, unless they make a lot of sense, but it is to innovate ourselves. And the innovation uh, is associated with creativity, with originality, with being adaptable to changing circumstances, which a fixed approach and method or methodology may not. And uh, above all, which can be great, as I've used this word before, but can be great fun. Um, if one is working in development studies and finding it a bore and not very interesting and a pain, something is very, very wrong. And you can look at yourself or you can look at um, what you're really good at, what you're really interested in and say, no, I shouldn't be here, I should be somewhere else. But the great advantage of development studies, which we touched on earlier, is its eclecticism. I, I've sometimes rather pedantically and, and in an ugly way described myself as an eclectic methodological pluralist, <laughs> which is absolutely terrible. I've got a T-shirt. I should have put it on. I've got a T-shirt, which has got that across the front, which I was presented. In the, with, in the United States. But I think that's it, that we need to be eclectic and innovative and to take personal responsibility rather than letting responsibility lie with an inherited or adopted method or methodology. And I think if you put those things together, the future, it just looks exciting. What's gonna happen next? And you, know, you can ask anybody, well, where are your frontiers? Where are the areas that you might um, go to, that you might work in, that you don't know about, or perhaps that nobody knows about? Are there blind spots? Blind spots can be wonderfully fertile. I've, um, perhaps it's a personal indulgence, but I just love looking for blind spots and, and finding them. And by blind spots, I mean, these are areas or topics which are not being uh, studied, which 
the main disciplines just seem to they seem to miss. And there's sometimes the linkages. I mean, the relationship between open defecation and stunting and impaired cognitive development in children, you know, that was a bloody blind spot. And what an exciting subject and an important one too. And I've just been very lucky because other people haven't been hunting for blind spots with the same, um, um, well, orientation that, that I have, that I, I don't want to find well-trodden pasture where it's all neat and where you have to refer to all this preceding literature. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you find a blind spot, you don't need to worry about all that intradisciplinary literature. You create your own, you take responsibility in, and, and above all, enjoy. Thank you very much, Robert. What uh, a nice way to end the podcast to think about fun, nomadism, innovation, and excitement. And we hope that you will continue searching out those blind spots in those distant pastures for many years to come and continue to inspire us. So thank you. And let me wish anybody who hears this a lot of enjoyment and fun themselves. Go for it. Thank you so much, Robert. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share to help us spread the word. Do you have a great book we could feature in a future episode? Then get in touch on email at between the lines at ids.ac.uk.